Hello from Ellensburg, Washington, USA. This is the Nick Zentner Geology Podcast, Episode 36, Rock Identification. Thanks for listening. Yep, this is another Geology 101 Lab episode. I'm not sure if these are working for you. We've done two so far, talking about maps, topographic maps, contour lines on topographic maps. And today, we're going to try to do some rock identification without looking at rocks. (laughs) How will this work? I don't know. We'll give it a try. We'll give it the old college try. So, um... Let me give you a little context for the 101 lab that we teach here at Central Washington University, and you'll see how the rock identification uh, activities fit into this. You know, I've been here a long time, 30 years, and I've been uh, supervising the lab and making sure the lab is uh, decent uh, all these years. And as the years have worn on, I've realized it's the field experiences that make the most uh, impact and are the most fun. Uh, you could come up with all sorts of adjectives, but it's all about the field, and, and those of us in geology know that. And even for somebody who's a non-science person who will never take another science class and certainly will not go into geology, they kind of get off on being outside as well. Uh, and for a surprising number of the, our students here at Central, uh, this is the first time for many to actually spend time outdoors in a natural area. Uh, And I'm not kidding about that, I'm afraid. They're living in Washington, and yet they have a lifestyle where uh, they might as well be in Omaha. No offense. So um, what we do is the gimmick of the lab is, hey, we're going to do some stuff in lab here, in the classroom, uh, but it's all in the spirit of preparing ourselves for these field trips. And there's only nine labs. The labs are two hours long. And uh, four of our nine labs, we're going outside. We've got a field trip to the Yakima River Canyon. We'll be down and back within a two-hour time period. We've got another lab out towards Menashtash Ridge, another one to the Thorpe area, and finally a walking trip over to Craig's Hill right here in in downtown Ellensburg. So we're going to do some rock identification to prepare ourselves for the first of our field trips. So let's do it. We got we got to learn our uh, chops before we go out and actually bang on some rocks out in the field. So uh, there are millions and millions of rocks, of course, that you can find around the world, and geologists have devised a system on how to name these these millions and millions of rock samples. We basically have three bins, three garbage bags. Uh, however you want to call it. We've got three broad rock types, and you all know the names. Uh, Igneous rocks, sedimentary rocks, and metamorphic rocks. Uh, From lecture, hopefully you've learned by this point that uh, all igneous rocks have one thing in common. Uh, They used to be molten. To be an igneous rock, you were molten originally, you were, were hot magma, and then that magma has cooled off. So cooled magma, that's the buzz phrase for igneous rocks. And a bunch of the rocks in this room right now are igneous rocks, which means that they formed as magma was cooling off. Okay, great. Sedimentary rocks are composed of fragments. And those fragments have been glued together by Mother Nature. So cemented fragments, that's the phrase we want for uh, sedimentary rocks. And then metamorphic rocks are rocks that have changed. 
they used to be a different kind of rock, and then they were actually transformed, uh, stumbled there for some reason. Uh, they metamorphosed. They changed from one rock type to another. Those are our three garbage cans. Those are our three bins. Those are our three options for this first lab, this basic beginning igneous rock lab. So our only goal for the first part of this episode, this podcast episode, is to talk about how can we decide. I'm holding a rock in my hand. How can I decide the things igneous, sedimentary, or metamorphic? And now that we know the basic definitions, how can we actually do it? I mean, it's fine to have the definition, but give me some skills now. I'm in the lab, you say. Okay. Well, um, this is embarrassingly oversimplified, but I think it works for a first crack at this. First statement, rocks are made out of minerals. So minerals almost always are these tiny little specks of things inside of the rock that you're holding. So rocks and minerals, not the same thing. Rocks are composed of minerals. Minerals are the building blocks of rocks. Blah, bitty, blah, bitty, blah. Fine. But usually those minerals, specks, are too small to actually identify. And so we need to do something to try to make progress on calling this rock that I'm holding in my hand an igneous rock, a sedimentary rock, or a metamorphic rock. Well, the first concept is what I call, and maybe nobody else calls, fresh minerals. Does your rock hold or contain fresh minerals? And by fresh, I'm going to use non-scientific terms. Does that, do those minerals, do those specks inside of your rock, do those minerals sparkle? Do they reflect light? Take the rock and, and kind, of, uh, kind of move it around in your hand and have the light from the sun or the light from the fluorescent buzzing lights above us. Uh, can you see different reflections of light as you rotate that rock in front of you? If you can, those are fresh minerals. The fresh minerals, they, they reflect light. They sparkle. They look new. I know that's not very helpful in, in a kind of a... Uh, uh, artificial sense or an abstract sense in this podcast setting, but that's that's kind of what we're after. And then the opposite of fresh minerals are all I can call dull minerals, minerals that don't reflect, don't look new, don't have any sort of uh, reflecting surfaces on them. So let's make some progress. If you have a rock that has fresh minerals as you rotate the rock in front of you and you see all these different sparkles, that's either an igneous or a metamorphic rock. The freshness is coming from temperature. And the high temperatures involved in igneous and metamorphic rock creation, boy, I said the word creation, interesting. Um, sidetracked, okay, got back to it. Um, the sedimentary rocks typically have dull minerals. Now, I know there's tons of exceptions, and if you're a sedimentary rock graduate student right now, you are absolutely irate. I understand, I understand. But this is a first crack with the Geology 101 crowd, and the dull minerals uh, are a vote for sedimentary because those minerals have been rolled around. Those minerals are actually fragments of things that have been transported into the desert or in a river system, etc. And by the way, since I'm on the, the sedimentary thought, uh, okay, you've got some dull minerals, some dull things inside of the rock, fine. Can you find any fossils? Can you find any leaf fossils or shell fossils or bone fossils? If you can, that's for sure a sedimentary rock. Igneous and metamorphic rocks, it's impossible to find 
It's not impossible. It's very rare to find fossils inside of an igneous or a metamorphic rock. That's why the petrified wood of central Washington is such a freak show, but that's an episode for another day because petrified logs have been pulled right out of lava. That's an exception. Usually the fossils are found in sedimentary rocks. Okay, so you've got this rock. It's got fresh minerals. We know temperatures involved, and we know that those sparkly minerals are from either an igneous process or a metamorphic process. How can we tell those apart? So what we teach in our Geology 101 lab is look at those fresh minerals. Are they randomly arranged or are they organized? If you have fresh minerals that are randomly arranged, that's a vote for igneous, meaning that's a liquid magma that's cooling off gradually or quickly, doesn't make a difference, and those fresh sparkly minerals don't have any organization. They don't have any rhyme or reason. That's an igneous rock that you're holding. But, uh, by contrast, if you have a fresh set of minerals in a rock, but they are clearly organized, and I'm avoiding the word layering, because layers are typically, that word layering is typically associated with sedimentary rocks on the scale of the Grand Canyon. Uh, but we're talking about metamorphic rocks, fresh minerals that are organized. And by organized, I mean uh, we got a bunch of sparkly white minerals that are kind of forming a band. And then we've got a bunch of sparkly black minerals, and they form a different band, like zebra stripes. That's the most uh, over-the-head uh, version of metamorphic rock identification. But that's it. I mean, if you're expecting another 25 minutes on this, our first crack at identifying rocks is simply, hey, this is igneous, this is sedimentary, this is metamorphic, and using the fresh versus dull minerals and the random versus organized minerals for the fresh guys, that's how we get to igneous, sedimentary, metamorphic. So we spend, I don't know, 15 minutes on that. We quiz them right away without any little uh, cheat sheets, and they're ready for our first field trip to the Yakima River Canyon, where they're busting open river rocks with a rock hammer, and they're making a call, igneous, sedimentary, or metamorphic. Okay, the next um, time we deal with rock or mineral identification is more of a mineral-focused lab. Uh, so if we want to take a step further, now we need to realize that to really properly come up with rock names, we need to know mineral names because of what I just said, that rocks are composed of minerals, and the minerals are usually teeny tiny. But if you go to a museum of natural history, or if you go to a geology department and you look in some display cases, there's usually some mineral samples, aren't there? Those mineral samples are huge. The mineral, size, the mineral samples are the size of my head or my body, or maybe the whole, um, maybe a car-sized uh, mineral. Those are crystals, and those are unusual. So the first message about mineral identification is almost always minerals are small specks inside of rocks. That's the normal uh, way to run into minerals. But in these rare cases, you can get these minerals to grow exceptionally large. That's why they're collected. That's why they're valuable. That's why they're displayed with all of their geometric beauty. That's not our, our effort today. We're talking about rock identification. So we're talking about common rock-forming minerals. You get it? So the minerals are small inside of the rocks. Okay, so in this mineral set, we're going to learn how to identify minerals, ultimately helping us identify granites and rhyolites and things like that. 
So with these mineral samples, we have found some minerals that have grown a little bit larger than normal. And so you would swear that in this practice set, you've got a bunch of rocks, but actually you're looking at minerals. Minerals have a, uh, if you have a big mineral sample, um, you're not seeing a bunch of different colors inside of that sample. That's a telltale way to tell the difference between a mineral sample, the size of your fist, and a rock sample, the size of your fist. What's the difference? If you have a rock sample the size of your fist, it commonly has different colors inside of it, different minerals combining together to make that rock. But if you have a fist-sized mineral sample, it's all one color. Okay, And that's what you have right here in front of you, Geology 101 lab student. You've got fist-sized mineral samples. They're not rocks. If you really want to piss me off, you're going to call these things rocks. Come over here. I can't figure out what rock number three is. It's not a rock. It's not a rock. Oh, wait, this is a nurturing environment. Um, yeah, let's explore this together. What mineral do you think you have here? Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. Okay, so we have mineral samples. We got about uh, 10 of these to learn. 10 different mineral names, and you have an identification chart in front of you in the, in the lab manual, and it's organized. Uh, we've organized it a particular way. You can take Geology 101 lab at different universities around the world, and you'd have a different system, but ultimately we're doing the same thing. So there's three properties we're going to talk about with these mineral identification um, steps. What's the color of the mineral? What's the hardness of the mineral? And what's the cleavage information for the mineral? That's an embarrassing statement. What's the cleavage information? Right, okay. This is not grade school. We can handle this. Uh, for our purposes, if the mineral is green or black, we're going to call it a dark-colored mineral. Everything else, every other shade, is going to be a light-colored mineral. So you've got a bunch of mineral names with a bunch of information, but they're organized by color. If they're light-colored minerals... They're dark-colored minerals, totally different paths. Again, green mineral, black mineral, call them dark. Everything else is light-colored. Next step. This is really a process of elimination to get to the right mineral name for this second lab that we're doing here. Okay. Um, hardness. Uh, there's more than 2,000 minerals in nature. They all have a different hardness. There's a hardness scale that runs from 1 to 10. So it doesn't matter what mineral you have, it has a hardness. It has a number on this 1 to 10 scale. The hardest mineral in nature is diamond. That has a hardness of 10. The softest mineral in nature is a mineral called talc, T-A-L-C, uh, talcum powder kind of stuff, right? And that's got a hardness of 1. So 1 is obviously soft, 10 is hard. And about 5.5 on this hardness scale is glass, whether it's natural glass like obsidian or artificial glass like the glass in this uh, classroom and these windows, that's 5.5 on the scale. So we have little glass plates, and we'd like you to perform a hardness test on each of your unknown mineral samples. Let me demonstrate. You take the mineral sample, you take the glass plate. Uh, in the old days when planters' peanuts used to use glass jars instead of plastic, I would always um, bring our old planters peanut jars into the lab every quarter and we'd use those those were nice and sturdy uh, nobody had a glass a peanut glass jar shatter in their hands thankfully 
and that uh, about 25 years worth of that, that was great. Well, I can't find glass jars anymore from planters, and so I've got to go to these dopey little um, two-inch by two-inch glass plates that don't last very long. Whatever. So we have our unknown mineral. Uh, can the mineral make a scratch on the glass? If it can, that mineral has a hardness greater than 5.5 on the hardness scale, you see? Because glass has a hardness of 5.5. And so sometimes it's, the mineral sample is pretty close in hardness to glass, so it's difficult. And I would rely almost more on uh, feel and even sound. Can you hear this mineral kind of grinding and cutting into the glass more than can you really see an obvious scratch? Sometimes it's subtle. Uh, but that's going to give us some information about our unknown mineral sample. And again, in your lab manual, you'll see a bunch of minerals based on color and then based on are they harder or softer than glass. The most reliable and the third and final step for identifying a mineral is cleavage. Okay, so in geology, cleavage is this. Cleavage like like a meat cleaver. Like if you go to a butcher shop and you're going to cleave that roast, you're going to split the roast, you're going to cleave it. And in these mineral samples, it's really a thought about what if we took a hammer to these minerals and busted them up and studied how those mineral samples broke, how they cleaved. If a mineral has cleavage, it's going to break along beautiful interior planes, cleavage planes, we call them. So minerals that have cleavage are going to break along these preferred orientations. They're not going to break in a random way. Minerals with cleavage break along these interior invisible cleavage planes. And so if you have a uh, kind of a cubic-shaped mineral and you're allowed to take the hammer and start whaling away on it, and if that cubic mineral has cleavage... It's going to break along these cleavage planes that are running inside of the big cube, and you're going to get a bunch of baby cubes. In other words, the small pieces are going to have mimicked shapes to the big one because of the way this mineral grew along and developed these cleavage planes. So what I'm getting at is the most reliable, by far, the most reliable way to identify a mineral is studying the cleavage information of the mineral, not the color. You know, quartz comes in every color of the rainbow. You can't memorize a certain color like purple and decide that all quartz is going to be purple. Instead, it's the cleavage information. So some of your minerals will have cleavage. Some of the minerals will not have cleavage. If you take a hammer to quartz, quartz never has cleavage. And so every time you bust up a quartz sample, it will shatter. And every piece of that small Every small piece of that quartz that you just broke is going to have a different shape than its neighbor. It did not break along interior planes. It broke randomly, like a beer bottle off the end of the bar. You're just going to shatter it. But if you have a mineral with cleavage, like calcite or feldspar or hornblende, these are common rock-forming minerals. Actually, not the calcite, but uh, there's a bunch of different minerals that have cleavage, and that means that when you break them, they break along these planes. Now, minerals are, samples are expensive these days. We don't want you to be busting everything up, although ideally that's what we would do. We'd have just unlimited amounts of feldspar for you to just whale on with a hammer. Uh, so instead of doing the breaking yourself, 
you can decide if the mineral sample that you're trying to identify has cleavage or not without actually doing the breaking. How are you supposed to do that? That's the hardest skill of this mineral portion of this podcast. Take your unknown mineral sample. Look carefully at the surfaces of that mineral sample. Hold it up to the light. Look down on the mineral. Rotate the mineral around in front of your eyes, looking down on it. Do you see flashes of light? Now, if it's truly a mineral with cleavage, you're going to rotate that mineral slowly. You're not going to see any flash of light, but you're going to keep moving that mineral sample down below your eyes, and then suddenly you'll get a big flash of light all at once. Kind of like you're lost in the woods and you're, you're trying to use a mirror to send a signal to somebody. It's, it's truly like that with a lot of minerals that have cleavage, good cleavage planes. It will reflect light like a mirror. And if you move that, uh, that mineral sample just a little bit more, that flash will be gone. That's what you're looking for. That's a great um, thumbs up for that mineral having cleavage. A big flash of light like the mirror. And uh, if you don't see that, if you, if you see, let, let's do, use the opposite example. If you're, if you're looking at a mineral that does not have cleavage, you might see a bunch of light. But then as you rotate that mineral without cleavage, you'll keep rotating and get different flashes of lights at different times. You're not getting a mirror flash all at once. You're getting a gradual sparkling as you rotate that mineral in front of your eyes. That's not a vote for cleavage, and quartz typically does that. Quartz reflects light, but uh, just kind of shimmers and and reflects light at all different times as you rotate the mineral around. So typically, the samples of minerals that have cleavage do have these, these kind of naturally flat sides to them. Not always, but oftentimes they are kind of rectangular shaped or square shaped or something else that looks like there's a, a flat surface. But you can't just kind of get casually look at the surface of the mineral and go, oh, yeah, that's definitely cleavage. You've got go, you to follow through, be thorough, and do this mirror reflection business. The final step, if you're lost in the episode now, we're trying to identify rocks. We know how to make a basic call between igneous sedimentary and metamorphic using the fresh versus dull routine. Now we're kind of mired down in the details of learning different kinds of minerals, and I, I, I plan to finish this episode by going back to the rocks and focusing primarily on igneous rocks now that we know how to identify certain minerals. That's where we are in the big roadmap of this episode. I'm glad you're still with us. Let's go back to the discussion. So I don't want to go through three dozen mineral names and all their physical properties, but I do want to give you a few common ones that typically show up. So in our mineral sets, we have two kind of pinkish minerals, two blackish minerals, and two grayish minerals. So six minerals I'd like to discuss. And three of, let's see, is that true? I'm thinking to myself now. Well, let's just do it. So you've got a pink mineral. Um, One of the pink minerals is harder than glass, but it does not have cleavage. And the other pink mineral is harder than glass, but it does have cleavage. It's kind of rectangular shaped. So the student then goes to the lab manual and says, well, what is this pink mineral that is harder than glass um, but does not have cleavage? And the answer is rose quartz. Quartz never has cleavage, remember. 
But I've got another pink mineral here that has cleavage. It's got, in fact, it's got two cleavage planes that intersect at 90 degrees. And that's potassium feldspar. So that's a very helpful distinction. Pink mineral, great, but it's all not the same stuff. Some of the pink stuff is rose quartz and some of the pink stuff is potassium feldspar. Moving on. Uh, black minerals. <coughs> got two black minerals in the mineral set. Uh, they're both black, great. They're both kind of reflective. In other words, they, they look like they have cleavage. I'm going to do the cleavage deal about the mirror reflection. By God, they both do. Both black minerals have cleavage. They have cleavage planes, in other words. As you rotate that black mineral, you get a flash of light, and then you rotate it more, and it goes away. But the difference between biotite mica and hornblende are two very common rock-forming black minerals. The difference is the number of cleavage planes. Biotite mica has one cleavage plane. That's it. One cleavage plane, biotite mica. That means biotite mica is usually going to be these flat flakes. It doesn't have three dimensions. It's got just got two dimensions. It's a bunch of these black, shiny flakes that are oftentimes stuck together in these big books, we call it, but books of biotype mica, and you can peel those sheets of sparkly black mineral content away from each other. It's cool stuff. But hornblende, part of the amphibole family, hornblende, uh, the mineral hornblende, has two cleavage planes, and the, because of the angle between those two cleavage planes with hornblende, which is actually 60 degrees and 120 degrees, as opposed to 90-degree corners, hornblende samples are usually uh, strangely shaped. Two cleavage planes, 60 degrees between the two planes. You don't have these rectangles of hornblende. You've got these, I'll just say, unusually shaped samples. And then finally, the two common gray minerals. If you look carefully at the two gray, and that's how we do this, by the way. People work through their sets on their own, and then we kind of compare our results before we quit. And this is what I do with them, which is I'm doing with you right now. You got two blacks, you got two grays, you got two pinks. Let's try to figure out how to distinguish between them. So the two gray minerals, one of them does not have cleavage. What do you think that is? Right. Most of the minerals in a basic Geology 101 lab that do not have cleavage are quartz. Quartz is a very common mineral. I don't know, is it the most common mineral in the world? I suppose it is. Um, should have looked that up. Should have prepared. I'm just staring at a wall, closing my eyes and talking about this stuff. Maybe it's working for you. Uh, but this, we just had quartz, you say. I thought that pink stuff that didn't have cleavage was quartz. It is. It's rose quartz. Well, how about this gray stuff that doesn't have cleavage? That's quartz also? Yes, that's smoky quartz, a common mineral inside of igneous rocks in particular. The other gray mineral, you guessed it, has cleavage, two cleavage planes at 90 degrees to each other, so they are rectangular. And if you look very carefully, if you do the mirror reflection jazz and you get one of those surfaces to light up with light, you'll see little parallel scratches on the surface. Like when you get the surface, the cleavage plane to reflect light, you can see these little miniature fingernail scratches that are all parallel to each other going down that surface. Those are striations. And it's the telltale sign for plagioclase feldspar. So instead of potassium feldspar, which was the pink stuff, this is gray feldspar, 
plagioclase feldspar, a very common feldspar in many of the granites around the world. <coughs> so those are six of the many minerals that we could discuss, and I could go on and talk about calcite and halite and you know, uh, the old school way to teach this is to have, you know, honest to God, like 30 different minerals to learn. But my philosophy is uh, let's only get into the tedium if it's going to pay off for us somehow in the field. Let's learn all this stuff to prepare to actually use it. That's been what I, I think has been uh, the most effective way to teach a 101 lab. Everything's tied to the field. And if we stay indoors for a lab or two, it's all in the spirit of preparing to get the most out of our field experience. So that gets us to naming different minerals, and we'll quiz you on that, students, next week. Um, gosh, we're already at the 30-minute mark. I think I might stop here, actually. I was going to then proceed right on to talk about the last of our rock identification labs, which involves different kinds of igneous rock names, like you know, all we've gotten so far, right, are specific names of minerals, six of them, and then just broad rock types, igneous, sedimentary, and metamorphic. But maybe you tuned into this episode saying, well, finally, I get to learn how to identify an andesite or something. Well, I think we'll break that out into uh, an episode down the road. Uh, I guess I'll call it advanced rock identification, although that's that'll be pretentious and probably, yeah, I'll have to call it something else. This one I'll call rock identification. I'll come up with a different name. Maybe I'll just call it igneous rock identification because that's the majority of what we do in, in Washington since we're so loaded with igneous rocks here on the rim of fire. So um, I think we'll call it quits here. Thanks for listening to this one. No idea if it worked, but I don't care. I do care, but I don't care. Do you know what I mean? Don't answer that. Great. Thanks for listening to this one. Uh, if you want more juice on how to come up with specific rock names for, um, yeah, look for that one coming down the road. All right. Thanks a lot. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>